Well, my name is David Stark. Folks back home call me Pastor Stark, and uh, it's an honor to be here, and I want to thank Reverend Morlock and the session of Richland uh, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church for extending the invitation to me to come and preach, and um, thrilled to be here, and looking forward to the Presbyterian meeting that's coming up tomorrow and Tuesday, so that should be a blessing. Uh, so I do send you greetings from Grace Presbyterian Church in Redding, California. We're up in Northern California, the more conservative part of the state. So uh, we, we appreciate being far away from a lot of things going on down south. But unfortunately, it does affect us sometimes. But we can talk about that some other time. I'm here to preach the word. I want to talk about the being clean is the name of my sermon. And it's about the cleansing power of the blood of Christ. So I'd like to read some scripture to you, and then we'll consider what God has said and trust the Holy Spirit to make application. So let's read from 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10, and then we'll have a word of prayer, and I'll begin. John the Apostle writes and says, This is the message which we have heard from him and declared to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Let us pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, for the work that you've accomplished for us uh, in your coming and also uh, are accomplishing for us now in your intercessory work before the Father on our behalf. And we look forward when you return on that glorious day with the promise that through your precious blood we are saved. And we thank you for that. Uh, we pray, Lord, that you would bless each one of us that's here, give us grace to give attention to your word. And I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, Heavenly Father. For we ask this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, this is one of my favorite sections in Scripture because it's very practical, and yet the truths that John expresses in a few words are infinite and eternal, uh, very deep. He says, this is the message which we have heard from him. John didn't come up with this on his own. He was an inspired apostle. He taught that which Christ had taught and that the Holy Spirit had inspired him to speak and to write. And he says, this is the message that we have heard from him. I'm going to be reading basically my translation based on the Greek here, so um, not different than the one we just read, but a few little things I want to emphasize. We've heard this message from him and are announcing to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all, not the least amount of any darkness at all. The original is very emphatic. There's no change, there's no shadow of turning, as it says elsewhere in Scripture. God is consistent, he is good, he is, is holy, he is righteous in all of his ways. 
We're going to have all of eternity to search that out because when we speak of God being infinite in his being and glorious in his attributes, his glory is unsearchable. That is, you cannot exhaust it. There is no end. In the Hebrew, it says uh, it cannot be counted. The sum is beyond our ability. So we'll have a wonderful eternity learning more and more about God. God is light, John says. That means He's open, he's he's true, he's everything he should be. He is God. There's no darkness in him. There's nothing evil in God. Although men slander God often and accuse him of it, it's because they don't understand who he is. If, John says, if we should begin saying, it's an heiress there, if we should begin saying that we're having fellowship with him and are walking in darkness, that is violating God's law, We are lying. It's not the truth. John's warning us away from such thoughts. And we're not practicing the truth. We're lying and we're not doing the truth. But if we are walking in the light, that means according to God's word, in fellowship with him and his people. And note the plural there. If we are walking in the light. This has to be applied to each one of us individually. But he's here speaking to the churches and speaking to the church. If we are walking in the light as he is in the light, we are having fellowship one with another. Because if you're not walking in the light, you're not fit to have fellowship with others. If I'm not walking in the light, then I'm of no benefit to my brothers and sisters. But if we are walking in the light, in fellowship, note that he says, we are having fellowship with one another And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, is cleansing us from all sin. I find that very wonderful and interesting that in the fellowship of the church, as iron sharpens iron, when we are in fellowship, walking together, loving the Lord, speaking the truth to each other, praying for each other, that's part of our sanctification. This is why the doctrine of the church, I'm not talking about, you know, what Rome or someone else might come up with, the some scary institutional thing. The doctrine of the church, the church called by the gospel, gathered according to the word of God in local assemblies, in presbyteries, etc. When we're walking in fellowship with each other and praying for each other and, as Christ commanded, loving each other according to God's commands, there's cleansing happens. We begin to change. And what it is, it's the Holy Spirit working in the body of Christ conforming us to the image of Christ. Now, this all it takes place because of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. But that's one of the ways that the Lord works. This is why church attendance and being in fellowship with other Christians is vital. John says, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, is cleansing us from all sin. If we should begin saying, again, that's an aorist in the original, it's a punctiliar idea that he's looking at the action, but has the idea of if we begin saying, if we should start saying that we do not have any sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us, or it could be understood not among us if we're in a group of people saying that. Because again, note it is plural here in the passage. So if we begin saying we don't have any sin, in other words, I've either never sinned or I'm beyond that now and I don't have to worry about it, John says we're deceiving ourselves. You're not fooling God. You're probably not fooling anybody that knows you. 
but you can fool yourself for a little while. Now, if you belong to Jesus, he'll deal with that, and he'll deliver you from such notions. But John says if we are starting to say that way, or act like that, we're just fooling ourselves, we're just deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, or among us, if this is understood corporately. If we are confessing our sins, that's a present, active, uh, it's subjunctive actually, but it's present, the idea, it's ongoing. If we are confessing our sins, well, what does that mean, to confess your sins? The word for confessing is actually related to the word homiletics, homologeo, and it means to openly confess and proclaim. It doesn't mean we go around telling everyone our secret sins, but it means that before God in prayer, because there's only one mediator between God and man, our high priest, Jesus Christ, before him we're open and we're honest and we don't hold back acknowledging that our sin is sin. If we confess our sins, notice he didn't say if we say a little prayer, that's important, we must pray, that's what confession is part of. But he's saying if we confess our sins, and he's talking about before God. The doctrine of auricular confession that came up in the Middle Ages that is held to in the Church of Rome and others, it's an abomination. The idea if you go to a man in a little room and you tell him all your deep, dark sins, he tells you to go say, depending on what you've done, a number of Hail Marys or uh, repeat the Lord's Prayer, as as Christ told us not to uh, use vain repetitions. But they say, well, say 500 Lord's Prayers, uh, and then you'll be okay. not in the Bible. It's not taught in Scripture. Confession is to be made to Christ, and we, we come to him. Now, it does say, if I wrong you, it says, if we trespass against each other, we're to confess our trespasses one to another. There's a textual variant there, by the way. Some Bibles say if we could, we're to confess our sins to each other. The majority of all the manuscripts say our trespasses, meaning if I wrong you, I should come to you and ask for forgiveness. But I don't need to come to you and tell you the things I'm dealing with or that the Holy Spirit's dealing with me. I need to go to Christ on those things. That, that part, we go to our high priest. If we confess our sins, know what it says about God here. He is faithful and righteous and just to, to forgive our sins, to remit them. The word forgive, actually, it means to let go of. He, when we're taught and ask God to forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, we just prayed that, I believe. When we say that, we're saying we're letting go. If someone has wronged me, I let go of it. I forgive them. God is faithful. That is, he's more willing to forgive you than you're willing to be forgiven. And he's just, he's righteous in doing it because there is a basis for it. And that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins. The payment has been made. God punishes sin. We know that. The Bible is very clear. He punishes sin to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And the soul that sinneth it shall die. The wages of sin is death. Clearly taught throughout Scripture. So how can God forgive us? Christ died for us. Christ legally became you at the cross. The same way Adam represented us in the garden, so when Adam sinned, Legally, you sin. You were in the Garden of Eden, legally, because the federal head of the human race, Adam, federal means covenant, the covenant head or federal head of the human race was in the Garden representing all of his posterity that would come from him. And when he sinned, 
That was us legally sinning. In fact, if your lawyer goes into court, if he loses the case, you've lost the case because legally before the judge, before the law, he is you. That's what happened. All those born by natural generation from Adam have his sin imputed to them. Now, just as an aside, this is why the doctrine of the virgin conception and birth of Christ is non-negotiable in the Christian faith. Christ is 100% man and 100% God joined in one person. As to his humanity, he is 100% like us, a human being, descended from Adam, but not by natural generation. That's why Christ was conceived sinlessly. So Christ also did not have Adam's sin imputed to him at his conception. Christ lived a sinless life, and so he was not subject to death. But legally, he became you and me for all of his people. And so at the cross, he was you there. Legally, you died on the cross before God because your representative, the federal head of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, was you. He died. So when God looks at you, he sees that the penalty has already been paid. When Christ, before he died, he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And it's understood, the old Heidelberg Catechism brings it out very well. Christ underwent the pains of hell at that time. He suffered hell on the cross. And because he's an eternal person who suffered in his humanity, his death has infinite and eternal value. So when God looks at you, he sees a person who's already died for their sins, because Christ is the one who did it for you and a person who's already gone to hell for eternity because Christ, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, we read. These are important foundational truths. God is faithful and he's righteous, so he can forgive us our sins. That's the point. There's a basis for forgiveness so that he should forgive us our sins and not just pardon us the guilt, which absolutely must be done, but he doesn't just leave us broken and sinful with corrupted hearts and minds and souls. But he forgives us our sins and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's the doctrine of sanctification. God forgives us, he pardons the guilt, and then he cleanses. That's sanctification. So God forgives both the guilt and the pollution of sin. And what's going on, he begins to conform us to the image of his son, Jesus Christ talking to someone trying to explain this the other day. You may have heard the illustration. If you have a big block of marble and you want to carve an elephant out of it, what do you do? There was a lady in our church. She said, well, I don't know. What would you do? I've never tried that. <laughs> I said, you get a chisel and you chip away everything that doesn't look like an elephant. <laughs> she said, oh, okay. And I said, what God's doing in your life, he's chipping away everything in your life that doesn't look like Jesus Christ. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. Now, if a block of marble could speak, it would have some things to say. Mostly probably, ouch, ooh, why are you doing this to me? Why do I have to go? And eventually, hope you like elephants. I think they're kind of cute sometimes. You'd have a, an elephant statue. When God is conforming us to the image of Christ, and he's taking away those things in us that we don't necessarily want to get rid of right away. Sometimes we say, Lord, why? Why am I going through this? You know, that we've all probably heard the danger of praying for patience, okay? What's going to happen if you pray that prayer? God will put you in situations where you need to have patience. I always love it 
The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, gentleness, meekness, long-suffering. What kind of people is God going to put you among if he wants to bring that out in you? Yeah, okay, I know what it is. My wife understands it, Uh, okay. Um, He's put you with people where you're going to learn to be gracious. You're going to have to learn to forgive. People who make mistakes sometimes. People who sometimes sin against you and do things they shouldn't do or say hurtful words. If you want patience and long-suffering and gentleness to come out in your life, God puts you in places where you learn those things. He's chipping away everything in you that doesn't look like Jesus. So he's faithful and just. Finally, John says, if we should begin saying, and literally it's in the perfect tense with that, that verb for sinning. If we should begin saying that we have never sinned, and that's really what that means, that we have no sin, that we're good people. You hear this a lot today. If you start saying that, John says, we're making him a liar. Not in actuality, but just in our own actions. And his word is not in us or among us. To walk with Christ, we need to know who we are. We need to know who he is also. Now, in regard to cleansing, there's some texts. Some of them were brought out in the liturgy this morning, and I really appreciate that. Um, Certain texts, though, we we can learn. what I want to be clean, Lord. I I want this, this sanctification that your word talks about. This cleansing that we just read in 1 John chapter 1. I want that. I want to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want his moral, spiritual, and ethical excellency brought out in my life also. I want to be an image bearer. That's who I was, that's what I was made to be. The wonderful thing about sanctification, and we live in a generation where everybody, you know, I've got to be me. I'm from California, so I probably hear that more than you guys do. Um, you know, I got to be me, I got to be me. It's like, you know, maybe you should forget that because your life's kind of a mess right now. In sanctification, we're finally beginning to become what we're supposed to be. You get to become who you really are, that God made. That's why we look forward to the second coming of Christ that we just read about also, the blessed hope of the church. Why? Because when Jesus comes, John says, we're going to be made like him. We're going to be completely 100% conformed to his image, because we're going to see him as he is. And then John adds, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. So if we know, Lord, thank you, that someday I'm going to be removed from even the very presence of sin. I've had the guilt forgiven. I'm having the pollution cleansed. And I know when I physically die and my spirit leaves my body, you know, in the book of Hebrews, it talks about becoming to the heavenly Zion where there are the spirits of just men made perfect. That's pretty awesome. That means those loved ones that we've had to say goodbye to, they're with Jesus now. They're in heaven. Their spirits have been perfected. When Christ returns, their bodies will be raised incorruptible, never to sin again. If you're alive when that happens... You'll be transformed in a twink, twinkling of an eye in a moment, and you'll be conformed to Christ, and you'll be saved body, soul, and spirit, as uh, Paul talks about in First Thessalonians chapter 5. You'll never speak a bad word. You'll never have a bad thought. You'll, and, you know, the one thing awesome about heaven is you're never going to hear a bad word spoken, no discouragement. Every, every word that's spoken is going to come out of your mouth, and everyone else is going to glorify God and be beautiful and awesome and praising God because his love will fill our hearts. John says, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he is pure. But we purify ourselves by going to God, 
going to Jesus Christ for cleansing and what we just read, confessing our sins, being honest with God about what sin really is. That's how you begin to get it out of your life. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. Note that confession is not just saying it. It's saying it with a desire to get it out of your life and recognizing that I need to repent. I need to look at this differently. I need to have a change of heart and mind about this. You know, the Greek word, has, it's kind of it's spiritual, but it's kind of intellectually based. Metanoia means to have a changed mind. The old Hebrew word is suf for repentance. It means to turn, okay? Hebrew is very uh, pictorial. To turn from your sin. I need to repent. I need to forsake my sin. I need to ask God to help me. Some sins are like stains in a carpet, though. It takes a lot of scrubbing to get them out. James talks about the sin that doth so easily beset us. And sometimes, you know, it's like, Lord, I've been dealing with this anger issue, or I've been dealing with impure thoughts, or I've just been dealing with pride, whatever it may be. It just seems that I hate it. It just seems to come back. Lord, help me. Please get this out of my life. Sometimes you have to just keep going to Jesus and say, Lord, get this out of my life. Help me. What's he promised to do if we confess our sins? He's going to forgive us, and he's going to cleanse us. And that's an ongoing work. Psalm 32, 5, David wrote and said, I acknowledged my sin unto thee. Note that, not to a priest or a pastor even. You can go to your pastor for counsel, but your pastor can't forgive you. Your pastor can point you to Jesus. Good pastors do that. But he, David said, I acknowledge my sin unto thee, and mine iniquity I have not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. And thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. That's Psalm 32 where David talks about the joy of the person who's forgiven and to whom the Lord will not impute sin. In Luke 16, 15, Jesus rebuked the Pharisees because they didn't think they were sinful. They thought everyone else was. And he said to them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men. That is, you declare yourself to be righteous before men. You compare yourself with others. No, I always say good opinion. Everybody get the little bag of good opinion. It's like perfume. If you spread it around, life is pleasant. If you just dump it all on yourself, it's kind of rough to be around. All right. So if you have good opinion, spread it around. Ask God, Lord, help me to see you in my brothers and sisters, my friends and neighbors, my Christians that I know. Spread that good opinion around. Have a good opinion of others. It's part of loving others. But Jesus rebuked the Pharisees and said, You are they which justify yourselves before men. But God knoweth your hearts. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. Now, we've seen this in our culture. There's things going on that are absolutely abominable, horrible, and filthy that are being promoted to our children in our culture. And if you speak out against it as a uh, Pastor Morlock mentioned, you speak out against it, you're the criminal. You're the troublemaker. Because people don't want to hear about it. They're dead in trespasses and sins. They want to eat their garbage. You come along and say, that's bad. It's going to kill you. Well, you're now the evildoer. Well, speak up anyway. All right. Uh, that which is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Now, he's speaking to people that were self-righteous also, so we need to keep that in mind. David prayed in Psalm 139, 
beginning at verse 23, he said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. You want to really see your Christian life improve? Go to God and say, Lord, show me what is wrong in my life. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 19, verse 12, David said, Who can understand his errors? And then he said to God, Cleanse thou me from secret sins or faults. Secret sins are not the ones that you're doing that nobody knows about. Okay, Secret sins are, you may be doing things or having things that you're okay with, that you're not even aware of, that are sinful. Remember King... Josiah, when they read the book of the law to him, he'd not heard it before, apparently, pretty clear in the text. When he heard it, it says he tore his garment, and he said, Woe unto us, we have sinned against the Lord. He knew we're in trouble, because by the law is the knowledge of sin. So this is a good prayer. Say, Lord, if I am doing things or thinking things or living in such a way it's not pleasing to you, here's the key. Show me from your word. Okay? You can't go by what other people say, because they'll say, oh, it's okay, you can do that. I do it all the time. You say, no, that's not the standard. Okay, You go to God, you say, Lord, show me. He will. In Hebrews chapter 9, we're told, though, to give us some hope, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctifieth, that's ongoing, to the purifying of the flesh, that is, they had these ceremonies, and the person was declared clean by that, so if, if that external ceremony counted towards someone being able to participate in the temple and in the life of Israel, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, now listen to this, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Note that the blood of Jesus Christ applied by the Holy Spirit is able to purge, that means to cleanse, to purify, to sanctify your conscience. That's your innermost working mind. He's able to purge your conscience. He's able to get the garbage out. He can get the stains out of your life. He knows how to make you clean. How much more shall the blood of, of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, that's that infinite aspect of what transpired at the cross, through the eternal spirit, offered himself without spot, because he's sinless, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Revelation 1.5 says, And from Jesus Christ, as John wrote to the seven churches, the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. We've already been cleansed. This work of sanctification is the ongoing application of that salvation. That's Revelation 1.5. Hebrews 13, excuse me, 1.3, the latter part says, When he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Christ is victorious. Now, real quick here, three things I think we need to know. First is, we need to know what sin is if we're going to confess it, correct? I've heard some meetings where, you see this among liberals. Again, I'm from California, so I've had to put up with some of this stuff. Um, thank God, you know, don't want to say, thank God I'm not like other men. It's like, wait a minute, that's what the Pharisees said. <laughs> We're all capable of these things. You ever heard somebody confess other people's sins? You know, in California, it's like, 
Oh, Lord, please forgive us for what all those other people are doing to pollute the environment and blah, 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 blah. And it's like, what about you guys? You know, what about yourself? Okay? So we need to know what sin is. It's, you can't corporately, this happened, Daniel did it, Nehemiah did, confess the sins of your people. Say, Lord, we as a people are sinful. Have mercy upon us. Make sure you include yourself in the group, though, okay? You know, because like, oh, those people are so bad. Well, they may be, and you should pray for them, all right? But if you're going to confess sin, start with yourself. We need to know what sin is if we would confess our sins. Romans 3.20 helps us. Paul says, therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul said in Romans, so it comes by the law, knowing God's word, the moral law of God. Romans 7, 7, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Because the law convicts us of sin. He says, God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. Two words are related in the original there, epithumia and epithumesis. Um, I wouldn't have known this. The law says you're not supposed to have sinful desires. Well, Paul was a Pharisee. Externally, he was righteous. Nobody could accuse him. He certainly wouldn't have accused himself. Till the Holy Spirit came and applied the law. Paul says, when the commandment came, when the commandment came, I died. Paul realized he was dead in trespasses and sins. Um, catechism, shorter catechism, in the definition, what is sin? Question 14. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So we need to know God's law, the Ten Commandments and all of the Bible. John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, uh, whoever commits sin transgresses also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. So we need to know what sin is. And secondly, we need to know to whom we are to make our confession. And that is to Christ as our great high priest. He is the one who makes intercession for us. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, who is he that condemns? It is Christ that died. So he's not going to condemn you. He died for you. He's also risen again. Who also is at the right hand of God making intercession for us. The only one in the universe that has authority to condemn you is pleading on your behalf before God. John says in 1 John chapter 2, My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate. That's the, that Greek word parakletos, referring to the Holy Spirit, the comforter. But one who stands alongside, an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous. We have an advocate, someone who pleads for us. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. That means there's no other propitiation available. It's like if you're on a ship. There's only one lifeboat. It's, and the lifeboat that saves is Jesus Christ. This doesn't teach universal atonement here. He's saying there's only one atonement. There's not one for the Jews, one for the Gentiles, etc. He's the propitiation for our sins and for the whole world. Hebrews 4 says, at verse 14, Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Here's the application. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And finally, in the Gospel according to St. Mark, Chapter 1, 
we read of a man that came to Jesus. And I want to close with this. In Mark chapter 1, beginning at verse 40, we're told, Now a leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him, and saying to him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Had no doubt of Jesus' ability. You can make me clean. He wasn't, why would Jesus want to have anything to do with me, he thought, if you're willing. All this man knew was rejected, rejection. Lepers couldn't come into town. They couldn't participate in anything. They had to tell people far off, I'm a leper, stay away. No, no touch from any human hand had been upon him. He knew who he was. So when he, he came to Jesus, though he'd heard things, and he'd heard enough. And he came to Jesus, he saw something others didn't see. Elsewhere in Scripture says this man was filled with leprosy. He was one big stinking sore, okay? Very ugly. But he came to Jesus and said, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And then Mark tells us, Then Jesus moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. This man hadn't felt a human touch who knows how long. Jesus touched him and said, well, wouldn't that make Jesus unclean? No, because read what happened. And he said to him, I am willing. Be cleansed. And as soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Beloved, know this. The Lord Jesus Christ is more willing to cleanse you of your sin and to get rid of your besetting sins than you're willing to ask. He stands ready. He's never rejected anyone that's come to him in simple faith with a contrite heart. Lord, if you're willing, I know many of you here have prayed this prayer already, and when you confess, you Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. I don't know how to do it, but I'm coming to you. Please cleanse me. And what's Jesus, what did he say to the leper? That's there for a reason, so that you know your Lord's response is, I am willing. Be cleansed. That's the Lord Jesus Christ that we love because he loved us first. May God apply this and fill his word in our lives. Let's pray. Our gracious God and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that it's true. We ask you now by your spirit to help us to remember what the scriptures say and give us grace to learn what it really means to seriously come before you to that throne of grace, to come boldly, even as we are like that leper did when he came to you, Lord Jesus. Help us to do that. And ask, Lord, please cleanse us. We won't ask you if you're willing. You've told us you are willing, Lord. We know you're able. So we pray you'd forgive us our sins, our besetting sins, secret sins, Lord. Anything and everything in our lives that's displeasing to you, get it out of our lives. We want to be your people. We want to walk with you and with one another in fellowship. And this we ask, Heavenly Father, in the name of your Son, our Lord and Savior, our mediator, advocate, and great high priest who has saved us with his precious blood. Your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, in his name we pray. Amen.